Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> I'm back mostly. Um, I do not know what hit me Monday night. Monday night? I'm sorry. I've been asleep for like three days. Um, I don't know what hit me Monday night, but it hit me like a freight train. Honestly, um, I suspect it was a very short, very mild, I mean, relatively mild COVID. I took a test Monday morning about 6 a.m. and it was negative. But, you know, the last time I had COVID, I had symptoms and I was taking a test every morning, and it was, wasn't was until the fifth day that the test showed that I had COVID. And what happened to me this time, the symptoms were very similar, very similar. You know what? And I took a test, and I thought, should I keep taking tests? Why? You know, I know that I feel lousy. I know I'm sick. I mean, who cares at this point? <laughs> Whether it's whether it's COVID or not, I mean, I'm as vaxxed as a human being can be. And this time around, the symptoms that I had, which were the same as last time, um, really bad headache, uh, high fever, um, terrible muscle pain. The symptoms were the same and. I took the test. It was negative 6 a.m. Monday morning. I called Matt Cummings, our operations director, and I was like, you know what? I'm forg- I can't do this. Uh, you're going to have to find somebody. And, uh, and then I went back to sleep and slept all day Monday, all day mon- all Monday night, um, all Tuesday night. Um, and I woke up. Wednesday, ah, probably about maybe one or two in the afternoon. So what was that? I I went to bed Monday night and really, really probably woke up Wednesday afternoon. And that's exactly what happened last time I had COVID. I had a bunch of weird flu-like symptoms. And then that was over Memorial Day weekend. And I literally slept for three days. This time it was better. I only slept for two and a half days and then I was awake. So my voice is a little raspy. I have a little bit of a cough left. And as I told Lady B earlier, my head's a little foggy. But then how are we going to know? Because I know most days I sound like my head's a little foggy, right? So let's face it, you probably won't even notice the difference. Um, but a big thanks uh, to Tim Hogan. Poor Tim Hogan was driving to the remote we had scheduled for Tuesday in Kankakee. He thought he was just going to be there to watch, maybe take some pictures, put his feet up, have a little lunch. And instead it was, oh, by the way, Tim, <laughs> you're doing the show today. Here, here's a list of guests. Yeah, we got a little bit of background for you, but just just go, just step in and go. And um, that is um, not as easy as it might sound. So a big, big thank you to Tim Hogan for um, 
performing above and beyond Tuesday. And, of course, uh, Turi Ryder was here yesterday. Big thanks to her for filling in on short notice. And I'm back, baby. Maybe not better than ever, but I'm back. So, so I am really glad to be here. Um, I'm glad to be conscious. <laughs> I'm glad to be talking. And to the extent that I am capable, I am glad to be thinking again. So uh, let's see what's happened while I was um, while I was checked out. What happened politically? Well, looks like another woman has come forward to uh, say that, yes, indeedy, uh, she had an abortion that of, of, of Herschel Walker's fetus. The, woman, the woman's story is that the two of them were dating. She said that he kept telling her he was going to leave her, his wife for her. But she got pregnant, and he made it very clear that he wanted her to have an abortion. He drove her to the abortion clinic one day. She said she went in, but she couldn't. She just couldn't do it. And she came back out and got in the car. And he told her that they were going to be coming back again tomorrow because she was having this abortion. A fine human being. And she said that's what happened. The next day, he drove her back to the clinic, and he sat out in the parking lot and waited out there for her for hours until she had the abortion and um, was recovered enough to leave. And uh, again, he is saying that this woman as well is also lying. And the fine human being that is Lindsey Graham is standing beside him. Lindsey Graham, who is um, one of several invertebrates in um, government, standing beside Herschel Walker and um, talking about how this terrible woman's lying about him. (sighs) I did not get to see, as you know, I love Pennsylvania. I did not get to see the debate. Between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz, a lot of people are saying that, you know, Fetterman didn't do himself any favors. I mean, the guy had a major stroke, what, four months ago? If you've ever had anybody in your life who's had a stroke, you can recover cognitively. Your head can work long before your mouth is able to work. Adequately, And they're like, oh, he didn't do himself any favors. Um, You know, he shouldn't have, you know, he was looking bad. And I also saw, again, fine human beings, these Republicans. Apparently, um, Dr. Oz was specifically talking as fast as he could, knowing that John Fetterman needed a little extra time to process auditory information, what he's hearing. Dr. Oz did everything in his power to trip him up. Spoke really fast, said a lot of things really fast. Specifically, so Fetterman would look bad. 
I'm sorry. That man's a pig. And that's an insult to pigs because I happen to like pigs. I happen to think pigs are okay animals. So I'm going to say something else. He's just not a good person, okay? He's just not a good person. Uh, So what else? Oh, yeah, some news today. We have a new entry in the mace for uh, the uh, city of Chicago. I think I'm, I'm having a little processing issues myself this morning. We are probably not going to really go full tilt boogie on the mayor's race till after the midterms. Um, and then as soon as we've got the midterms behind us successfully, triumphantly, because you're all going to vote and you're going to get the young people in your life out to vote. And we are then going to focus on the mayor's race and we have a new entry. Cook County Commissioner. Um works with the Chicago Teachers Union, happens to host a show on WCPT, Brandon Johnson. It's not a huge surprise, um, even before I dropped off the face of the earth with whatever the hell I had. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union was donating vast sums of money. I think I think they donated a million bucks to a campaign war trust should Brandon Johnson choose to announce that he is running for mayor. And indeed, uh, he is. He did. Um, we have, uh, before, we, before we take a break and after we come back, I'm going to share with you some of what Brandon Johnson had to uh, say about what he was doing and why he was doing it, because I think that's really important. Um, first of all, uh, he talked about public safety and um, attack ads that have been running about public safety. Anyway, listen to this. Let's talk about public safety, which is a real topic of concern. But make no mistake about it, it has been manipulated in recent political ads with the most blatant, racist stereotypes imaginable. The racist portrayal, it shortchanges our people and it deepens the divide in this city. Is there violence? Yes. Is carjacking wrong? Yes. Of course it is. But let me tell you what else is wrong. When you have 700 families who live in Parkway Gardens, but the community center can only hold 100. That's wrong. It's wrong when we have over 120,000 families who are still on the CHA waiting list. That's wrong. It's wrong when our park districts in the summer shut down at 1 o'clock and working families don't get off to 6 if they're lucky because they're working 2 and 3 jobs. That's wrong. It's wrong when black and brown families like mine have lost loved ones to COVID because of the structural inequality that existed before the pandemic. That is wrong. You know what else is wrong? Is that not too far from here, I used to work at the New City YMCA, and they shut it down, ending after-school programs, in the middle of the day programs. That is also wrong. We're going to hear more from Brandon Johnson, the newest entry in the race for mayor, when we come right back after this. 
podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. The Devil's Advocates. But do you think the Biden administration's calling up Laura Ingram and making the announcement to the world that we're invading Russia with amphibious troops? Come on, Trump. I mean, and I want to hear fine Trumpsters that want to defend that crap. You know, he's a little late for the early bird buffet. Maybe you people were just naive marks who believed he was a super genius. Then I got some uh, land I'd like to sell you outside of Fukushima. The Devil's Advocates on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, weeknight, 6 to 8. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have a new hat in the ring in the race for mayor. It is Brandon Johnson. He is a Cook County commissioner. He also works with the teachers union who donated a large sum of money to his campaign fund even before he declared, which he did this morning. And he is also a host here on WCPT where uh, I'm sharing with you some of the things that he said today when he made his announcement about why he is running. He um, also talked, as you heard a moment ago before the break, about some of the things that he thinks are wrong and need to be fixed. He also talked about what he sees as a real lack of services for a lot of people in the city of Chicago, including violence prevention services. Listen to this. In order to make Chicago not only a safe, but a just city, we need to be a healthy, thriving city for everyone. We have to begin to actually deal with those who are the least of these. Elder Ford, my faith tells me, when you do on to the least of these, you do on to me. And so what is it that we need to do? We need to have treatment, not trauma, for those harmed by trauma. That's violence prevention. We need to fully invest in health care and in, in public housing and green jobs and fully funding our neighborhood schools. That's violence prevention. We need 100 percent affordability in this city. That's violence prevention. We need to revitalize our neighborhoods and parks that have been neglected for far too long. That's violence prevention. We need to support community-based businesses and cooperatives. Guess what, y'all? That's also violence prevention. Protecting our planet while also employing our people in green initiatives, that is also violence prevention. These are the prevention measures, the policy inventions, the healing strategies that will make us safer. We need more creative programs that offer long-term community-based solutions. The safest communities in the entire world are the ones that have the best schools, the best health care, the best parks, the best libraries, the best jobs. That's how we keep our community safe. He's not wrong, especially about the jobs part. You know, study after study has shown, and, and frankly, most politicians even acknowledge that the long-term solution to crime is jobs. If people feel that they have a way to make a living, support a family. That is what they are inclined to do. But the problem is, is those are the kinds of solutions that are not band-aids. They're not quick fixes. And when you've got carjackings and armed robberies, people want, 
They want it fixed now. They want it fixed today. They want it fixed tomorrow. And, you know, creating jobs, creating industries, bringing jobs to communities where there is a scarcity of jobs, that takes time, which is why most politicians will say, you know, it takes a two-pronged approach, except that it's always seems to be easier to find the money for the quick fixes. Oh, we'll put more cops on the streets. Yeah, we'll have them walk a beat. We'll put up more cameras, more shot spotter. Yes, it's a two-pronged approach, but it usually seems to me that it's easier to find the money for the quick fixes rather than finding the money for the solutions that aren't going to really show anything for a while. You know, that's hard for a politician. Oh, yeah, I want this kind of money allocated, but, you know, when I next run for office, I'm not going to have anything to point to because it takes a while to offer the incentives that bring in the businesses, that hire the people, that reduce the violence. Um, Brenda Johnson was not alone today. A Democratic congressional nominee for the 3rd District, Delia Ramirez, was with him. And um, she told the city of Chicago why they need Brandon Johnson to be the next mayor. Listen to this. We need someone who will stand with and partner with our communities, not belittle and dismiss them. We need someone who will be accountable to working people and not the wealthy or the elite. We need someone who will invest in our schools and our mental health needs, not close them down. We need someone who understands the struggle of working families because our struggles have been his struggles. And unlike the current mayor who talked about bringing in the light but then failed to keep those promises, we need someone who we can trust to stand with us once elected because he's always stood with us. Not bad, huh? Um, one final um, soundbite that I want to share with you from Brandon Johnson, C- uh, Chicago uh, Cook County Commissioner, CPT host, um, who had declared his run f- to be the next mayor of Chicago. Uh, he told a very personal story. He told a story about an incident from his time as a public school teacher in Chicago. Let me share that with you now. I remember one of my most difficult days I've ever experienced as a public school teacher. Is when one of my students, along with 32 other kids, was having a bad day. (laughs) And I was the only adult in the room. And we were missing each other. And my students knew that if Mr. Johnson sat on a particular chair, that that meant I had enough and that I was taking a timeout because when you're teaching middle school students, you can't give them a timeout. You got to take a timeout. (laughs) And I sat there and I began to give them a lecture about them expecting and accepting the self-fulfilling prophecy that we are trying to disrupt. And in the midst of that lecture, one of my students raised her hand. And I don't know about you all, But when you're having a bad day, the last thing you want 
is a 13-year-old child to tell you what to do. And she said, Mr. Johnson, I'm going to tell you what the problem is. (laughs) All the things that I wanted to say. And she said, the problem, Mr. Johnson, is that you should be teaching at a good school. I could hardly leave my classroom that day. And I promise I wouldn't cry. That's my dad's side of the family. They get real emotional. But Chicago has to live up to this amazing promise and this idea of being a world-class city. But in order for Chicago to be a world-class city, it has to include all of our young people in its beauty, its wealth, and its power. You should be teaching in a good school. Because state funding for schools is um, not what it was decades ago, property taxes have to make up the, the large share of the funding, which is why when you go to an affluent neighborhood where property taxes are high, you get good schools. And when you go to a neighborhood where there's a lot of unemployment, and there isn't a lot of property tax money raised. You get schools without the fancy departments, without the um, iPads. Hell, sometimes without basic supplies. It is not an equitable system. We are going to take a break. Here's what we uh, have planned for you today. Uh, um, we're going to be talking up next to an author. Uh, he's written a book called Weapons of Mass Delusion. I think you're going to want to hear what he has to say about the Republican Party. And uh, then uh, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and Dave Hoekstra and I are going to be talking media. And finally today, we're going to talk to um, Judge Chris Kennedy, who's uh, running, uh, you'll see him on your ballot, 2nd Judicial District. Let's take a break and get started right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Robert Draper has a new book out. You may have read his earlier book, uh, To Start a War, which uh, talks about the Iraq War and how we exactly got into that. His newest book is called Weapons of Mass Delusion, when the Republican Party lost its mind. And he is here now to talk about it with us. Robert, welcome to our program. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Joan. I appreciate it. So uh, when did the Republican Party lose its mind? How far back does it go? Well, the book's not a history book. It's, it's, so it's, um, it really concentrates on the 18-month period of time that begins with January the 6th, 2021, a real day of madness and, and mm-hmm. day of infamy, I think, and, and carries to the present day. And, and, Joan, what I focus on is how 
rather than purge itself of the corrosive elements that led to the riot at the Capitol, the Republican Party has instead become a host body for extremist thinking, and that those extremist um, exponents really have taken over the party. So far from um, entering into kind of um, introspection and uh, rehabilitation after what happened uh, at the Capitol on January the 6th, the party has moved even farther into extreme territory. Why do you think that is, Robert? Uh, because uh, Donald Trump simply stated has a stranglehold over the base of the Republican Party. And uh, uh, he has convinced tens of millions of people that the election was stolen. Um, he has convinced them as well that he did nothing wrong on January the 6th, that those were peaceful protesters, although perhaps FBI was somehow involved or Antifa. Uh, and he has convinced them of a host of other lies that basically have um, resulted in the base of the Republican electorate being in a state of mass delusion, which is the subtitle of my book. But there are others involved in the Republican Party, people who would appear to be a little bit less likely to be swayed by emotion and perhaps a little brighter and yet they have also embraced or at least not stood up to the craziness. My theory is that the Republican Party, being a minority party, has realized that they really need to get their voters out. And what motivates a voter more than fear and anger? Am I off base here, Robert? Not in the least, no. And and so you're correct that um, there's, there remain many Republicans, um, perhaps they even constitute the majority, uh, who do not subscribe to Trumpism, uh, who deplore what took place uh, with Trump's refusal to concede and with the riot that ensued. Uh, but they've largely gone to ground. Um, uh, the office holders have out of fear, frankly. You know, they, they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. They're afraid they'll get primaried and beaten by a MAGA candidate. And the rationale they tell themselves is that I'm not going to, you know, try to stand up to them because if I do, then one of them is going to beat me. And that will only thing only make matters worse. But you're correct, John, that, that um, uh, you know, the prime motivator and almost any campaign is negative campaigning, which involves anger and fear and, and you know, whipping up the base. And um, the Republican Party, since Trump arrived on the scene, has uh, managed to demonize the other side, anyone to their left, as not just being uh, wrong or immoral, uh, but being uh, of existential concern to Americans, to, to being, uh, uh, you know, almost Luciferian. And I, I'm not joking about that when you actually hear the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world refer to Democrats as godless and as communists and as the enemy within, employing the kind of jargon we heard during the McCarthy era of the 1950s then what they're essentially doing is dehumanizing the opposition and whipping up hate. Well, and and some of that fear that you just mentioned about being primaried by somebody more radically right and defeated, we saw that here in Illinois in our primary. I was talking to a couple of Democratic state legislators that I know, 
And they said that they were very sorry to see that at least two or three Republicans in Illinois who were running for reelection from downstate and people who, while they didn't agree on everything, were people that they felt that they could work in a bipartisan way on some issues at least. Those people were primaried and defeated by people much farther to the right. And this one Democrat that I was speaking to about this said, you know, I don't know what the legislative session is going to look like going forward, because even though we obviously came to issues with a different party perspective, you know, these were people who you could talk to and you could work with across the aisle. And I just uh, I just don't know if these hard right um, il- people who primaried them and won are going to be that same kind of partner. And when it comes to legislation. So, I mean, it, it really is a founded fear for them, isn't it? Well, yes, and it, it presents a strategic conundrum for Democrats, because on the one hand, yes, they would prefer to work with sane Republicans. Uh, on the other, they um, have felt that even the sane Republicans are being um, you know, held hostage, essentially, by the more extreme elements of their party. And so to Democrats, the solution has been defeat Republicans, all Republicans, even the so-called you know, adult-in-the-room uh, Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes means tactically supporting a MAGA candidate in the primary um, in hopes then that you in the general election, you a Democrat, can present that candidate as um, as the extremist that they are and manage to defeat that person. Uh, but you're right, you know, that, that um, this is a legitimate concern that Democrats harbor that a lot of these more extreme Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates type of Republicans, and the you know the mimics who are running as um, being similar to them, that when they take office and should the Republicans regain the majority in the House, there will almost certainly be endless investigations um, of members of, of Biden's cabinet, of Biden's children, et cetera. There will almost certainly be impeachment inquiries, regardless of whatever the rationale is and, and how substantive it may be. And and um, and to the extent that legislation is offered by this Republican majority, it's going to be far more extreme than uh, the Republicans in the Senate will sign on to and certainly that any Democrats will. So, mm. yeah, it's a um, it's, it's a concerning uh, it's, a, it's a concerning scenario for sure that, that Democrats confront. In his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, Robert Draper also talks about the Republican Party's relationship with QAnon. Robert, simply put, how did QAnon go from being considered um, so far afield that it was the butt of jokes to now being something that is by some Republicans openly and proudly embraced? How did that happen? Well, I mean, it's on the one hand, it still is, you know, the butt of jokes. It still is extreme. I mean, these notions that there is um, a deep state uh, pedophilia ring and that they are wearing the, the you know, masks of dead babies that they eat is, you know, more than preposterous on its face. But but the truth is, John, that the, the underlying precepts of QAnon are what made that conspiracy theory attractive 
to many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans. And those precepts are that Donald Trump is this great president who is single-handedly fighting a deep state, that um, uh, that the media uh, lies to us all the time, that, uh, uh, that children are at great risk in our country, that the borders are being opened and, and uh, very systematically and deliberately in a great replacement theory is underway. These are all things that underlie um, and really predate QAnon, and they postdate QAnon too. So you referenced, you know, the um, QAnon members of Congress. There's one in particular, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has since disavowed um, QAnon, though she was very much an adherent in 27 and 2018, um, just a year before she announced her candidacy in 2019. But but again, she basically embraces those same concepts that underlie um, QAnon. And, uh, and we are now hearing in the midterm campaigns, Joan, you know, that um, even mainstream Republicans um, speak about, you know, their children being in danger and their children being um, mutilated by doctors and, and subject to uh, drag queens in schools and, and teachers who are groomers. And all of this is right out of the QAnon playbook. And it's something that Marjorie Taylor Greene had been saying, you know, all of that quiet part out loud. But now she's being mimicked by even um, people in the party, like the mainstream South Carolina um, incumbent Nancy Mace, who openly despises Greene, but realizes that whipping up the Republican base is necessary for her to win. Wow. Um, I'm speaking with Robert Draper. His new book is Weapons of Mass Delusion. When the Republican Party lost its mind, we're going to take a break. Part of what's in the in the book is he has some profiles of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kevin McCarthy, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar. I'm going to ask him to share some sketches of those personalities when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Robert Draper has a new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And part of the book uh, includes profiles of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Lauren Bobart. Um, Robert, I'd love for you to share, like, Lauren Bobart, tell me uh, what you learned about her, what you've written about her in the book. Sure. I mean, what's interesting about Boebert um, is that, again, she was a bit of an outlier who basically managed to win um, her nomination and gain prominence because she had showed up to the rally of uh, a Democratic presidential candidate, Beto O'Rourke, who had very famously talked about um, in the wake of a mass shooting in his town of El Paso, Texas, that, um, hell yeah, we're going to grab your uh, AR-15s. And Lauren Boebert showed up to some rally of his and said, I just want you to know, hell no, you're not grabbing mine. That got a lot of attention, and it thrust her into um, uh, ultimately into her congressional seat. But she has since then been kind of in a a struggle um, to make herself heard above the din that includes Matt Gates and and, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, uh, and she's 
done that by trying to be, you know, more and more outrageous and more and more uh, 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 to, to talk more and more about, you know, her love of guns to the extent that, that um, Democrats, at least early uh, in her tenure, were openly afraid of her because she bragged about um, bringing her firearms to the Capitol, which is, in fact, forbidden, and uh, uh, and were generally uh, genuinely concerned that people like Boebert were violating occupational safety and health um, uh, worker safety guidelines. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, to me, Boebert represents the performative wing of the Republican Party. She's not as serious uh, a character in terms of influence as uh, Green is, because Green is very, very close to Trump, and Boebert um, has yet to be. Let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is a woman who I read recently doesn't even have a campaign office. She was stripped of all of her committee assignments. She basically has nothing to do. And yet, whereas you would normally expect those sorts of things to weaken a candidate and make them less popular, she seems more popular and more influential than than ever before. Can you explain that to me? Yes, it, it, it goes, Joan, to her being attuned to the MAGA base of the Republican Party, perhaps more than any other member of the House of Representatives. And um, Green started out her campaign in the middle of 2019, mimicking Trump, um, positioning herself as the Trumpiest candidate out there. And um, she won on her own, caught the attention of Trump because um, she was such a cheerleader for uh, the MAGA point of view, ultimately became very, very close to Trump and all and and has aimed throughout um, to view her position in Congress as very different from the way people traditionally do. I mean, usually um, you try to do great committee work and um, maybe even become a committee chair at some point, a sub or subcommittee chair. She doesn't even have any committee seats. You try maybe to get a leadership position. She doesn't seem to have any particular interest in that. Or you try to bring as much pork as you can home to your district. And again, that also hasn't been Green's thing. Her thing is to be a national figure. And she does that by saying outrageous things, getting tons of online donations, um, speaking constantly to right-wing outlets, and positioning herself as the lone fighter or the proximate fighter um, on behalf of Donald Trump now that Donald Trump has left center stage. And she's convinced lots of people of that. You go to her office and the, and the walls are covered, completely covered, with fan notes from people, not in Georgia, but from all over the nation, saying, you know, God bless you, Marjorie. You are the fighter who, you know, I, I, I thank God about every night. And um, I don't have much money because I'm living off retirement, but here's $50. And, uh, you know, these aren't like two or three or four letters. I'm talking about hundreds of them. And I've seen her at rallies outside of the state of, of Georgia where she basically takes over, you know, takes over the audience. And, and so she has really, you know, by um, out magging everybody, possibly even including Donald Trump, has made herself into a person of real influence. She has said publicly that she would be more than happy to be uh, on the ticket with Donald Trump as his vice president. Do you think if he declares that he is going to run again, that he would give her that? Well, yeah, that quote of hers arose from interviews I did with Green 
in which she told me, um, and I think the first time she told me this was in February of this year, that she had been talking to Trump um, and Trump was raising the possibility of her being his running mate. Um, that conversation, rolling conversation between those two has continued throughout the, um, throughout the summer and fall months. Now, personally, John, I think that Trump has probably talked to a half a dozen people. Uh, and I think Green would cop to that, too, a bit likely. Uh, Nikki Haley, Christy Noam, uh, and uh, perhaps Carrie Lake are on that as well. Um, but Green does have one thing going for her that the others do not. And that's that um, she has a strong relationship with Trump that is based on loyalty. And after uh, his previous running mate, Mike Pence, failed to do what Trump wanted him to do on January the 6th, I think he places loyalty at a premium far more than any other quality they may have. So that does give Green the inside track. Okay, you've studied a lot of these people up close and personal. Do they really believe the things they say, or is it like just an extended con because they know that's what people want to hear who are MAGA supporters? Right. Yeah. And I I think the best answer to that, Joan, is they believe enough of it. Um, Green, for example, does believe the election was stolen, though, when you ask her, as I have, just exactly how did they go about stealing it and who was involved in this nefarious conspiracy, she doesn't have a good answer. Um, but she she believes fundamentally the basic things that she says, but she also knows that saying them in the most hyperbolic way imaginable is the way to get attention, the way to dominate the attention economy of the Internet, and that in turn is a way to gain influence, to raise online donations. So she and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and the rest of the loudest voices in the room of the Republican Party have understood that, um, that you know, being shameless and not letting, you know, uh, facts get in the way of uh, saying what you say uh, is, um, you know, that the, there is an incentive structure for that. And they console themselves by telling themselves, well, basically, at bottom, all the things that they are saying are true. And they, of course, know that, that I mean, you know, Green saying, as she did recently, that, that um, Biden is Hitler saying that, Democrats want Republicans dead and the killings have already started. I mean, she probably, I'm sure she believes that Democrats despise Republicans and think that it would be better for the country if a lot of Republicans were dead. But I doubt she thinks that Democrats are actually, you know, systematically going around killing Republicans. That's the kind of stuff she says for hype and online donations. I've read a one person's take that people like Boebert and Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene they didn't run for elected office because um, they're passionate about an issue or there are certain laws they want to pl- pass or wrongs they want to write. The, it's, it was described as they wanted to run for office to be famous, like to be celebrities, yeah. which is why somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't really care that she's not on any committees because – uh, you know, the whole point is that this is a platform whereby people will listen to you and invite you to speak and you can be famous. Is there truth to that? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the problem with that, and I'm familiar with that take too, Joan, is that it ascribes 
motives to people um, by someone who doesn't know those people. And, and, you know, so I haven't spent a lot of time with Matt Gates, but I have with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and yes, I think she craves attention, but do I think that that is the sole motivator and that that was principally why she decided to run? I don't know. I mean, it's, she, um, she's pretty convincing in saying that uh, she became um, disgusted with Democrats, but even more disgusted with Republicans when they control the House, Senate and the White House, not getting all the things done that President Trump wanted them to do. And she then went to Washington to um, to talk to Republican senators about all this and couldn't get an audience with any of them. And I think she was outraged by that and um, and decided, screw it, I'm, I'm going to run myself then. And I and I also think that to say that they just want attention, they just want to be famous and a celebrity um, implies strongly that they don't believe anything that they're saying. And I and two things can be true at once. You know, a lot of people as politicians crave attention, love the roar of the crowd, want to be famous, but they may also actually believe some of the things that they're running on. And I think that that is the case um, with uh, Green and a few of these others. It, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, that um, their behavior can be reprehensible. It doesn't change the fact that they are overly performative. But to suggest that performance is only what they're about and that they have no belief system other than just being famous presupposes that you know them to the extent that you can actually provably say that um, you know them better than what they, they're claiming that they are. How many of the far-right Republicans who are in office, running for office, what percentage would you say are white supremacists and or racists? Yeah, really tough to quantify, but I, you know, the, uh, but I certainly think that you know, a, um, uh, a, a significant, you know, a very significant minority of them at minimum. Um, fit that description, but even more to the point, I mean, even some of those who will, you know, take a polygraph saying there is no way in the world that I'm racist or a white supremacist, nonetheless, will blow the dog whistle um, uh, in ways that will agitate uh, the right wing and more reactionary base of the Republican Party that may um, very well uh, hold white supremacist and or racist beliefs. And, and so, you know, I'm bringing all this up to say that in the end, it's kind of a distinction without a difference. That you can be someone who, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene protests, for example, over and over that, that she's not a racist, that she grew up with people of color, that she has black friends. And I think she sincerely believes that. But when you say the kinds of things that she has said, um, you know, about about Muslims, for example, uh, and um, uh, saying, you know, some of the racially uh, offensive things that she said in the past about blacks uh, and Confederate statues and all, then, um, then whether you're being consciously racist or not, it, it, it scarcely matters. You are fomenting racism. And, you know, that in the end is more important than who fits the denotative, you know, version of racist or white supremacist. Robert, your book is just terrific. Thank you for coming on the air and talking with us. We have about 30 seconds left. Is there any one single thought you want to leave our listeners with? 
Yes, the, and that's that, though, we've talked understandably a lot about these kind of weapons of mass delusion, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boeberts. The really troublesome thing for our current state of democracy is not so much them as it is the public, as the people being deluded, the, being deluded en masse, hence the, the, uh, the, the second part of the title. Um, and there are tens of millions of people today who believe the election was stolen, who, if the Republicans lose critical seats in 2022, will maintain those were stolen from them, and who believe that Jason lies relating to January 6th, relating to COVID vaccines, that, so, that there's this you know, right-wing uh, media ecosystem has fed them with all this disinformation and that they believe all of it to be true is something that is a real long-range problem for our democracy. I, I do not know um, how we tend to it right away. I do not know how it gets flushed out of the system, but we must call attention to it. Well, it sounds like that should be the next book, How We Fix the Problem. Um, so you go get working mm-hmm. on that. Um, and in the meantime, we will buy Weapons of Mass Delusion When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind by Robert Draper. Thanks for being here, Robert. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. We're going to take a break for news. Be back with more right after this. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. About once a month, uh, former uh, WGN Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, former editor at the Trib and the Sun-Times Mark Jacob and I get together to talk about the media and uh, what is going on. And it is that time again. Welcome, Jennifer. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Hey, Joan. How are you? Um, well, that's an interesting question, and um, I don't really think we have time to get into it, so let's just say I'm okay. <laughs> All right? All right. Um, Mark, I've been sick for the last couple of days, and I'm uh, I'm a little raspy, and... Uh, as I warned the audience, uh, I, my brain is a little bit foggy today. Not that, as I said, anyone is going to notice the difference. Um, so in case I ask you something that is a little incoherent, just go with it, all right? Just pretend that I made sense and make sense of it with your answer, please. Well, we can follow the old uh, Mayor Daly thing, which is, you know, print what he means, not what he says. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm channeling my Mayor Daly today. God help us all. Um, there's so many different things uh, that we need to try to get to today. I want to start, as the audience knows, I have a fixation. Don't ask me why, especially with the races in Pennsylvania, particularly the race. Um, between Fetterman and Oz for Senate there. And I did not get to see the debate between the two of them. Maybe you guys did. But this is what I read about. I read that people saying that Fetterman was halting. I mean, the guy had a major stroke, what, four months ago, but that he was halting in his responses. I also read, and this is what particularly gave me grief, two things. First of all, that the format of the debate was set up so that it was like a, the whole thing was like a lightning round, which seems particularly 
insensitive to somebody who admits that they still have some processing, some um, some auditory processing issues. And I also read after the fact that it seemed like Dr. Oz was trying to talk really fast and say as many things as possible as quickly as possible in what they interpreted as a deliberate attempt to confuse Fetterman. I don't know if either of you guys saw the debate or if you've um, read anything about it, uh, but I'd like you guys to weigh in on, first of all, the format. Shouldn't the people putting the debate on have taken into account the fact that that, you know, the guy's pretty clear, you know, sometimes it takes me a while to find the right word. You can't ask somebody like that to answer a question in just a few seconds. Um, Mark, you want to start with this? Yeah, I guess I'll be yeah, uh, quickly. I just feel like, um, it, yes, they should have adjusted to, to get the best answers. I mean, the thing about it, Joan, if, if the goal of the debate was to get the candidates to express what they thought about the issue so that the public could make informed decisions about who to vote for, they would have had a different format. And uh, But that's not really what the, you know, the, the, the sad thing is that's not the reason we do debates anymore. It's just kind of, you know, it's, uh, you know, five, 10 rounds. It's like a, you know, prize fight. And it's, and, and, and I think, the real problem is that when you view it that way, then those uh, that was definitely you know to the disadvantage of Fetterman, just because you know because it does become this kind of you know quick talk fast. Who can say do a zinger? Who can who can confuse the other guy and all that? He was halting. And 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 one more thing I want to say about that is that is that we what's really the issue is not whether Fetterman was not good at debating because of his uh, disability. The question is whether he would be a good senator because of his disability. But that's not what that's not what the news media was all about. It's all about, well, what's he going to do with the debate? Oh, he was bad in the debate. Oh, well, it's bad for his candidacy. It's always, oh, it's, he's at a disadvantage in this competition. And that shouldn't be the question at all. I mean, if, if, if the media was going to be grown-ups about it, the question would have been, with, you know, what does his handicap mean for his ability to serve in the Senate, not to win a debate? Jen, what do you think? Well, I did not see the debate. I only saw the clips like many of the rest of us. And frankly, that's how most of us see these things, right? Unless it's a presidential debate. And frankly, even then, most of the um, (coughs) intake of that kind of event is usually the the clips afterwards and the coverage afterwards. But um, I... I had a couple of different reactions. Uh, first of all, um, I thought it was remarkable that somebody with a disability agreed to do the debate and bravo for him to him and his campaign. I saw a lot of uh, response afterward that it was political malpractice to let him do that. But he's been pretty open and honest about what's happened to him and his recovery. I think one thing we have learned, in the, especially in the last few weeks, is that um, Americans don't, and American media in particular, don't really know as much as they probably should about disabilities and accommodations. And because I, I've been just dumbfounded by the... Um, 
just the ignorant coverage of what this man, what happened to this man, what he's going with, what is through, what his prognosis is, what um, adaptive technology means and how it's used and how it's everywhere in all of our lives in some capacity or another. I mean, the very news anchors that were criticizing him for um, using, uh, you know, uh, lower third captioning were reading captioning when they were criticizing him. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. How and they're also, I think, Jen, like it, acting like it was cheating. They're acting like it was like, a, like yeah. oh, he's getting an extra. I mean, come on. It's just an accommodation to help yeah. him be able to do, to, to do what he's supposed to be doing. I don't know if you guys saw this. Oh, go ahead, Jen. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Kara Swisher um, from New York Magazine, who has, of course, a wildly popular podcast she interviewed him for her podcast and i did not realize that 11 years ago kara swisher had a stroke she apparently has a small hole in her heart and that caused her to have a stroke and she was talking about her recovery process and how slow it was and the fact that she just you know is amazed that this guy is his stroke is so recent and he's still campaigning and he's still talking to people. And she said, because there had been a report, somebody, some reporter from NBC said, um, who interviewed Fetterman recently said, oh, you know, when we were making small talk before the interview, I just don't think he was able to follow me and understand what I was saying. And Kara Swisher said, I don't know what the heck happened in that interview. She said, but I've got to tell you, you know, I had no problem communicating with this man and he had no problem communicating with me. And it takes a while. It doesn't mean you're brain damaged. She said it takes a while to get, you know, to get your speech and and word recall back to the way it was before. It doesn't mean that you are permanently damaged. It's a process. It takes time. And I can tell you because I have been through the process. And frankly, he's uh, recovering a hell of a lot faster after a much worse stroke than I was at that point. And I thought that that was a really fascinating perspective, professionally and personally. Well, she made those comments after that first um, outrageous interview and subsequent coverage throughout the NBC and NBC network, um, that interview that Dasha Burns did with Fetterman that sort of ignited this latest round of what we're talking about, right? And that was about two, maybe three weeks ago. And Kara Swisher came right out and said, what you what you just said. Um, and then another reporter, Rebecca Traster, had also I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, had also um, in that same time frame done an interview with him and and ba- basically said the same thing. Like I talked to him for hours and what are you talking about? And then it turned out just one after the other came forward and said, well, I interviewed him and X and I interviewed him and um, now jump forward a couple of weeks and it's really curious to me how the national media took hold of this. This debate is only about 
right. how Fetterman with his disability is going to cope. Not the right. crazy of Oz for all of the things that he's been pummeled for through the years, frankly, and in this campaign. But it was solely about <clears throat> Fetterman and his coping skills, basically. Um, I've seen quite a bit of coverage about that, and I know we've shared some back and forth. And one thing that really jumped out at me was um, somebody pulled headlines from the national media and compared them to the local media in Pennsylvania. And the local news, God love local news, played it straight. Fetterman Oz debate, blah, 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 blah. Talked about this, that, and the other thing. The national headlines were all Fetterman and disability related. Um, It just was a really interesting difference. And I just think that the national media has just bought hook, line, and sinker, the Republican talking points on this, and missed the story and doesn't understand the story. And I just think it's another black eye for political media. I just, just a shameful chapter, I think. I just don't think they're very serious. I mean, the weird thing is, it's, it, they're so easily distracted. And they go the next bright, shiny object they're going to go for, and it's like, you know, Jen and Joan, it's like the thing that they hate the most are the issues. They hate the, 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 like the, the last thing they want to talk about is health care or abortion rights or anything. They don't want to talk about any of that. They want to talk about style. They want to talk about polling. It's it's so disappointing just how how not grown up they are. Frankly, Mm -hmm. I think you just hit the nail on the head. We need to take a break, guys. We are talking media and politics and Fetterman and Oz with uh, Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob. We're going to continue this discussion right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Stephanie Miller. Trump is what a despicable yeah. piece of Did yes. you see him live covering his own verdict laughing? And they're going to never see the money. There's no money. <laughs> oh, they'll find the money. They will. If you Suck think justice dry. doesn't matter, he is done. You can garnish wages. You can go after everything now. Uh, it, just because he's hiding money in a bunch of shell companies does not mean. And I know people are like, oh, he'll just, you know, appeal now and appeal and this will go on forever. No, he is after. Stephanie Miller. Weekday mornings, 8 to 11 on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, former editor at the Tribune, the Sun-Times, Mark Jacob. We are talking, we always talk media and political coverage. We've been talking about the Fetterman-Oz debate and uh, how it was covered and whether or not it was uh, covered in a way that was substantive. I have uh, one little real quick clip that I want to play for you guys. You know, as you said, you know, the national media was focused on, oh, Fetterman, how's he doing? Is he okay? And not so much on really the issues that were discussed. At one point, Dr. Oz was asked, like, who should be who should be making the decisions on abortion? Who should be, you know, calling the shots 
when, you know, abortion is the issue that you want to decide. Uh, Basically, it was a perfect opportunity for someone who is allegedly, purportedly rumored to be an actual doctor to say that, you know, maybe this decision should be between a woman and her doctor. But that is not how Dr. Oz, a carpetbagger from New Jersey, chose to answer the question. This is real quick, so listen closely. Listen to this. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Women, doctors, and local political leaders should be making the decisions on abortion. Why was that not the headline of the New York Times? I'm just asking, uh, because I know it's gotten huge traction on social media, that would seem to be a pretty, um, pretty much of a blockbuster statement. And yet, um, I didn't see it on the on a New York Times headlines. Did I miss something, guys? No, you did not. And you know that's because um, they were already completely invested in this other storyline. And as we all know. Um, changing a storyline like that, particularly for a legacy media operation, is sometimes harder than turning the Queen Mary around. Um, so they were all in on this, and they were not letting go of it. And um, I, found, I saw one critique of it that said what one thing that was interesting about just taking on the Fetterman health over the Oz abortion was that that was being that was happening through pundits and political reporters who were really being pundits who had not interviewed Fetterman or Oz been in Pennsylvania, but were all making these observations from afar, but it, it doesn't matter. They, they, you know, jumped on that GOP um, storyline and ran with it. And so Frankly, I'm not sure unless Oz had collapsed on the stage that they were going to change their tune. Again, the local Pennsylvania media did cover it. They covered what these guys said about the issues. Um, the national media, shame on them. And they still haven't covered the, the issues coming out of that debate. Has anyone seen any follow-up? Has anyone asked Oz what the heck he's talking about, whether he wants you know, your local alderman to decide whether you're going to get an abortion or not? Because that sounds like what he was saying. I haven't seen yeah. that. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, that's what I think that's what he said. <laughs> yes. I mean, the implications no. of that. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I tweeted, you know, a woman is going to have to contact their county commissioners to find out, you know. <laughs> Whether they yeah. get rights that day, I mean, it's like uh, it, it, it wasn't just. A, and the thing about it, it wasn't just a gas. It was it was the, your basic, you know, Republican who doesn't really stand for anything other than getting reelected or elected, uh, just trying to develop a position on abortion that will get them the most votes. I mean, they're trying to triangulate the whole issue. You know, they they needed the you know the radical right in order to get you know abortion banned as, as much as it has. And and now they're they're worried about the blowback, so they're trying to fuzz the issue and make it so people don't know. And the thing about that, you know, unlike you know critiquing style points on what on on how Fetterman how well he talks, not well, how well he thinks, they're not dealing with that. 
They're talking about how, you know, how well he talks during his recovery. Instead of focusing on that, focus on an issue. I mean, everyone knows that abortion is an important issue in this country. Why, why wouldn't that trump this, you know, the, the style points of whether somebody is, you know, is speaking you know, as well as the other guy? I mean, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's what I said before. They just, they, the last thing they want to do is explain complicated issues. They just, it's just, it's a lot of work, you know, better just show, you know, show some video and, and be done with it. And more clicks. It's not just video though, Mark, because it's, I mean, honestly, I feel like print is right in there with broadcast in screwing up this story. Um, You know, Jen, Jen, I got to tell you, I think the Washington Post, the Washington Post and New York Times have been about as bad as they've ever been in the last month. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling I agree. you. I mean, I am shocked by how. I thought they were getting better for a while. They 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 decided to occasionally call lies lies every now and then at least. And I thought they were kind of going to get better, but they're not. They've been horrendous in the last month, and, and horrendous, and not horrendous to both sides. They've been horrendous to the Democrats. They have. Yep. They've yep. done. I mean, it's a. It's just this unrelenting negativity based on polls that clearly, are, you know, are not accurate. I mean, the, you know, the New York Times poll that came out last week had numbers that no no rational person could possibly believe. Yet that yet they they just keep writing stories about it. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's really disappointing. Guys, you know, we need I to take a a oh, break here. Sorry, and. Um, we are going to get back to this. I also want to talk to you about the new changes at CNN. Uh, Chris Licht, the new CNN boss, sent out a, an interesting letter to the CNN employees. But coming up next, after the break, we're going to be joined by a Dave Hoekstra, a former Sun-Times reporter uh, who has written a book called Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. And uh, let's talk to him about this, how local covers things versus how national covers things and other uh, community news-related stories when we come right back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Jennifer Schulze, Mark and Jacob, and I get together about once a month to talk about the media. And it just so happens that uh, former Sun-Times reporter Dave Hoekstra has written a book about community newspapers, Beacons in the Darkness. Dave and I talked about his book um, a little bit earlier uh, previously on the show, and I thought Mr. Hoekstra would be a great addition to our discussion on media. Uh, Dave, I'm introducing you now to my good friends, Mark Jacob, Jennifer Schulze, both of whom you may already know, you know, this world of media can be big and it can be small. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. We have been talking, Dave, uh, well, we've been talking about the Fetterman and Oz debate, and uh, Jennifer mentioned how the local uh, newspapers, the local media outlets, 
covered the debate in a different way, actually more uh, substantively, substantively than did the mainstream media. You've been doing a deep dive into community newspapers. Does that surprise you? Well, in the book, um, you know, the book isn't a lot of, of, of national stuff, but it is, you know, they try to find the local angle. It's, it's hyper-local. Things are like, you know, it's mostly small towns in the, in the book. I mean, the biggest cities we go to are, are, are probably Charleston and, and well, there's a black paper I have uh, in Miami. But how does it affect the local community? So something like that, they try to break it down and, you know, I mean... The North Star for the book is Hillsborough, Illinois, a small town of uh, 6,000 people and about uh, 70 miles north of St. Louis. So I don't even know, I haven't you know, seen their paper but, or their online presence, but I don't even know how much uh, they paid attention to that. You know, I'm, I'm sure they're doing more on the, on the gubernatorial race and things like that. But the very fact that it appears that... Th- the debate was covered differently. Uh, we were talking about how the mainstream media, mostly Washington Post, New York Times, even some of the networks were, it seemed like all they were focusing on is, you know, how well does John Fetterman talk as opposed to what is John Fetterman saying and what is Dr. Oz saying, which Jennifer was pointing out that the local media, to much to their credit, seemed to be paying more attention to. In other words, the local media was seemed to be paying attention to um, the real news of the debate as opposed to perhaps what might be considered almost clickbait by the larger organizations. Does that seem typical to you? Yeah, that's true. And I mean, also, you know, it's, 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 it's television. It's, it's who appears, you know, you guys all know that. It's who looks good on TV and stuff. And Oz has the TV background. And, and, and you know, I, I saw the Fetterman stuff at, it was rough. It was, it was rough to watch it. So you can, you know, when you do it in print and you do it in newspapers, you 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 know you remove that visual, that visual aspect of it. You know. So. Before we went to break, go ahead, Mark. I was actually going to just tell him what you said before we went to break. Oh, well, that was long ago. I don't even remember. No, <laughs> Dave, I just wanted to ask you, I used to work at Medill about local news at, at Northwestern University. And, and uh, just, so your book is so intriguing that way. And, and I just wanted, was wondering whether there, what's going to be missed if local news at that level dies. I mean, because, I mean, who else, nobody else is looking at town council meetings, right? I mean, isn't, sure. isn't that like the, isn't that like the like where democracy on a local level lives or dies? Yeah, of course. It's it's accountability. It's transparency. It's the truth. You know, these small towns. Um, again, the Hillsborough. There's other small towns in the book, but Hillsborough was my, kind of a, a light narrative in the book. But these people are everywhere. They go to church. You see, you see the publisher and the editor and the, the reporters in church. You see them at a bar. You see them at a restaurant. You, you know, you see them you know, the Friday night football game and stuff. So. I think that not only builds trust when there's maybe a, a in, in this world a, a, a curtain and a, between the, the, the media and, and, and the consumer, but it also helps develop sources, you know, and, and you get to learn about what's going on in the community. Of course, that model is rougher to do in a, in a bigger city in, a, in an urban environment and stuff, but, and, and you know, they do great investigative stuff in Hillsborough. They, they know what's going on in, in some of these small towns, so... Um, 
you know, you, you got to be there. I, you know, I don't know. If, you know, Mark and I worked together. There was one time, and we talk about this. It's happened in, in the book in Eureka Springs, and they were just on the verge of doing it at the small paper in Eureka Springs about outsourcing the city council reporters to some other country. You know, it's crazy, <laughs> and uh, save money. And uh, they just they just stopped short of that. Um, but they wanted to have like people in, in another country cover their city council meetings in, in Eureka Springs. It didn't happen. But um, how was that even possible? Yeah, like by was, Zoom or something? Yeah, right. Or it was pre-Zoom, but yeah, over over the web. Maybe it was maybe it was Skype. I was Skype, but um, you know. So just I think having the visual, uh, the physical visual contact with the, the news sources every single day, I think, is, is a big plus. You know, Mark, I mean, these things, they can just, these guys, in the book, I mean, at the end of the book, there's this guy in Eldon, Missouri, you know, he's young, he's 30 years old, he's the editor, he also became the mayor of the town while I was doing the book, but the guy just experiments and does all kinds of crazy things. You know, ten, he throws 10 ideas on the wall, and, and if two stick, you know, he's, he's just, you know, these small places, they really have room to improvise and be nimble and to be fluid and to try new things, and I, I find that very inspiring for the future. Do you think anybody could be that? Go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Joan. No, I, I was going to say I, I'm from uh, downstate Illinois, central Illinois, and I got my what, first what? job in journalism at the Paris Beacon News. Okay. Which I just found out recently no longer exists. Uh-huh. And I just wonder if there's a, you know, in the really small towns, um, it seems like. Uh, the media is just gone. You know, it's not like reinventing or hanging on or doing any of those things like in the next tier size town, but it's just gone. And and then there was another little paper I worked at, the Christman Leader. It's now like a, a one page shopping circular kind of thing, you know, so that um, I wonder how much that's happening in Illinois and around the Midwest and around the country that, you know, you hear about these news deserts. Um, I I think the folks down in my part of the state, they they still have their radio, you know, they get some news from the radio, but they're totally plugged into the local TV news. Um, that's about all they've got, you know, and even like a paper in Champaign is not coming all the way over to the east side of the state to cover anything that's going on over there. So nobody's covering anything in a lot of these towns, which I just find so sad. That's true. Some have gone away, and so there's other models. I know in the book we talk about the uh, paddock going down there, and they buy a lot of these small dying papers, and they cluster them up, you know, and they do that, you know, for advertising. I don't know what that means for staff, but, you know, I've talked to the, the people who live in those small towns where some of that happened and some of the writers down there, and it's just they lose that local there's a real, you know, they're they're a little unnerved by people from outside coming in and buying their papers, but they have saved some papers by by clustering them up down there. You know, uh, Gaylor, the, the owner of the uh, Hillsboro paper, he's fourth generation. Uh, fourth generation. His daughter is the editor. She's fifth generation. And you know, I did a pre-interview and I went down there like four or five times. I did try to do as much of this in person as I could, but. You know, these people are in it for the love of the game and for the passion and, and to tell the stories and to tell the truth and to be accountable. He told me the first time I met him, like, we talked in their kitchen at their newspaper office for maybe two hours. And he goes, you know, if we make a dollar at the end of the year, 
it's been a great year for us. I don't, I never, I don't, I don't, I never heard that at the Sun Times. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, 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 it's. I don't know. I don't think. I don't know if it's a parallel to minor league baseball or something, but it's just the purity and the conviction and and the. That's what my book is. It's a celebration of these voices. It's not. It's not a. It's not a downbeat thing. You know, there's sad stories, but at the end, these people are all pushing hard to do the best they can and get the truth out. Well, and, and don't you think, Dave, that news is more trustworthy when it's done by people who actually give a damn about the actual journalism rather than making money? I mean, the thing about the, these hedge yeah. funds buying all these big papers is they don't care about journalism. In fact, they don't even exactly. care. They might as well be making widgets. They, they just don't care. You're exactly right. You know, and um, I've done a couple events. We had a, a book launch about a week ago, and um, Seamus was there from Block Club, and there were a lot of media people there. And we were talking, and somebody, I don't know who it was, who pointed out, but, you know, you know, I came up in a time where, I don't know, where my ethics were, you know, I wouldn't wear, I couldn't, I didn't want to wear something that I might be writing about, or, you know, my ethics were, were mm-hmm. kind of strong. But these people are really involved in the community, and they're really ambassadors for the community. And the word I've been hearing since the book came out is the the, new, the next generation has to be entrepreneurs. You have to like go out there and break that wall down and 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 get involved and do things. And these guys and these guys in Hillsborough, they're just you know that town. That's what's so important about Hillsborough. The newspaper was this was a dying. Gen- I mean, John, if you know that Jennifer know that part of the country. My mom's side of the family, they were coal miners now, the Peabody coal mines in Taylorville. So I know I've seen some of the way these towns have dried up and these guys mm-hmm. have reinvented that town. These guys have reinvented that city and the newspaper was in the, at the front of the line of getting that together. So it's a it's a combination of community and the newspaper making uh, for, for the common good. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's promising to me. You know. Guys, we need to take a quick break. Um, Mark Jacob, Jennifer Schulze, me, Dave Hoekstra. We'll be right back after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Uh, it's just refreshing. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and I get together about once a month to talk about media, how uh, healthy it is, how uh, balanced and fair the work it is doing is and where we see room for improvement, which we almost always do. We are joined right now for one more segment uh, by Dave Hoekstra, who has a new book out called Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. It is about how in small towns, some of these community newspapers that would otherwise just be disappearing are being reimagined either by new buyers or by uh, family members who have inherited the community newspaper and are trying to find all kinds of creative ways for it to be um, to be useful and to be successful. And you know, I think we have evidence here in Illinois of what a hunger there is for local newspapers because as um, as you all know, Dan Proft, the conservative radio host through his PAC, 
started sending out fake newspapers that were filled with Republican talking points. And before we before I brought it up on the air, I was getting a, a large number of emails from my listeners saying, oh, my God, you know, one woman, I'll, I'll not forget this email. She wrote to me, you know, when I got this newspaper, I was so excited because I remember when we used to have a neighborhood newspaper and I thought, oh, this is great. Someone has started it up again. And then she was like, and then I read it. And it, she said, and it was just like craziness. But I think her point about when she saw it, she was like, Oh, good. This is back. I personally live in a very small town, just a hair north of Chicago. And when I first moved here, we had our own little we had our own little paper. Will Met had its own little paper. Glencoe had its own little paper. And and matter of fact, when I first moved here, we had more than one. And they're all gone now. Um, I mean, Dave, I'm glad you wrote this book and I'm glad some people are making it work. But I think more of us have lost this than are gaining it right now. Well, yeah, um, you know, it's 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 I think I I might have said this last time. What led me into all this is I'm really, really buying into the I've I've done a few books. And at the end of my career at the Sun-Times, I was doing travel. I really wanted to follow the path of what is the meaning of community? What is the meaning of sense of place? How do we all get along? And that was 10, 15 years ago. And I think those those questions are way more important now than they were back then. People like the personal touch. Um, you know, people people want to, you know, I, I, you know, I miss having a newspaper. You know, I don't have a newspaper delivered so much anymore. Um, I, just, I just think, you know, they're missing that, but you have to, you have to be nimble. You have to, like, find, you know, adapt to the changes. Um, I, think it was, I think it was Kogan. I went to Kogan's thing a couple of weeks ago, and Kogan said, you know, hey, we all worked on typewriters at one time. Now we're all working on computers, you know. It's, the old model I do not think is going to work. You know, I love newspapers. I've got, like... You know, all these unread newspapers sitting around my house and stuff. But, you know, I mean, we talked about, and I think Jennifer, you mentioned this last time we talked. I mean, there's a whole section of the book about Walter Hussman in Arkansas about doing the iPad thing, you know, and just killing the killing the print edition in Blytheville, Arkansas, and giving um, everybody in town a free, you know, like everybody, maybe 4,000 people, 3,000 people. It's in the book. But giving them an iPad and learn how to read the paper this way. It's, you know, it's, but he's taking a chance, you know. I don't know if that's working all throughout Arkansas. I think it, I think it was fairly successful in Blytheville. Um, you know, just got to do try different things. You know, you know, I'm, it's funny. I'm reading Joe Madden's book, and here's a guy. Every other page, you know, every other page, it's like, I think outside the box. You got to think outside the box, and I'm always subscribed to that. But you know, if you don't think outside the box, you become stagnant, and you just you you, you die. So you have to. In, in this profession, I just think you've really got to experiment. So, so, Dave, are these really small newspapers, these community newspapers, are they, are they clinging to print uh, or, or are they getting online? Because, I mean, if they don't get online soon, you know, it's going to pass them by. Yeah, some are doing both. You know, um, since I since the book came out, maybe in the last six months, I mean, the book came out a couple of weeks ago, but Hillsborough did go to a paywall. I was kind of surprised at that. You know, John Gaylor told me it was coming when I was doing the book. They did go to the paywall. Um, 
but they still have a, a robust print edition, you know. And you guys know this in these small towns. What do they want? They want the obituaries. You know, they're all excited about <laughs> the obituary. You know, I mean, I made a joke in the book about back when I was at the Sun Times. What was it called? Mark, it was called Beat the Champs, you know. And I would say, hey, we're a South Side newspaper. So, you know, bring back the bowling league. Do a half a page on Beat the, you know. That was always that was always kind of tongue-in-cheek. But, man, you go down to Hillsborough and there, it is local. It's all the bowling teams. And, you know, it's just like, mm-hmm. so I think the people really still buy into the, the printed edition. I'm, I'm trying to do a quick scan through. I mean, I'm just off the top of my head of any any print versions that went away and I worked on the book for three years. I think they're all, they're all doing some form of print. Maybe they've cut back a little bit on, on, on the, the type, the days of the week they, they come out and stuff, but they're all, they're all sticking to a print. It's a, it's a, Dave, you said there was, they were instituting a a paywall. Um, But people have to pay for the print edition, right? Or is the print edition free? No, they pay for the print edition too. Okay. Yeah, it's old school. I, I talk in the book. I, mean, I started Aurora Beacon News out here in Aurora. I remember, and man, I went into Hillsboro first time I visited there, and there's people in there walking in and paying their subscription. It was charming, you know. <laughs> they're dropping off. The, I mean, it's local. I mean, they're dropping off the obituaries in person. And it was before the pandemic. They're dropping off, uh, you know, birth notices and wedding pictures. It's just, again, it's about that. It goes back to what we were talking about: that human contact, and you know, that's right. human contact and community is just so important today. You know. Well, it also goes well, to that. That really takes me back. That small town newspaper thing is just, boy, I don't know. But I'm curious. Again, I, you know, I'm from downstate, and not only, I mean, newspapers are gone in a lot of these towns. So are the people. I mean, you know, uh, where I'm from, where I'm from, you know, the grocery stores are gone. There's a Casey's, uh, you know, in every town, and frankly, that's about it. Um, you know, it's really hard to find a restaurant in some of these places. Um, it's just so much is happening. It isn't just the media piece of it, right? And so in a lot of these places, um, my friends told me Paris Beacon News, um, there were a lot of things going on there, but one reason they couldn't sustain it was because the whole town was suffering. You know, well, they were losing business. That's why losing people. Young people were leaving. Yeah, that's why Hillsboro is such an important case study. I mean, I saw it, and that's why I wanted to make it a threat. So yeah, their town's dying out. They lost. They lost the coal mining. They lost a lot of factories. They lost, you know, Sham Sham Glass was down there, and the town was drying up, and the young people were moving away. And so they have a thing called Imagine Hills Hillsboro down there, which is like a think tank that was started by Western Illinois University, and it's all these creative kids, young people um, that are still in town. They opened a. When I first visited there, the record store it's still there. It's called Gold Pan. They're going to be on our panel next. We're doing a, a thing down there on November third, a big panel discussion. And uh, they had a they had a record studio. They still, I mean, a record and a, and a recording studio in the back. I think the recording studio. And this town is six thousand people. They've got a couple coffee shops. They've got a couple brew pubs. And this Imagine Hillsboro. You know, they're they're just a lot of young people bringing the town back. And at the end of the day, what does that have to do with the newspaper? The newspaper is in the front line. The Hillsboro Journal News is in the front line of helping recruit new new. Uh, businesses to Hillsborough and I mean like I said they're they're real cheerleaders for the town and that's not to say here in Chicago there's not people of course there's people on nonprofit boards and things like that but I just you know growing up I just never I don't know I just in my newspaper experience I just didn't see the people I know just get so deeply involved in championing uh, a town and they that you know that story in Hillsborough is how they're bringing that town back 
you should check out this thing, the Red Rooster, where we're having the. Um, that's a. It's just a completely wild story. That's where our event is next Thursday night. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a cliff note thing of it. So you get you get the guy who led the team that invented the iPhone. I've got a section in the book about uh, iPhone and how it influences media. And he invented, he led the team up at Apple that, that created the iPhone. He's from central Illinois. He went to, met his wife at the University of Illinois. Take, you know, so he's loaded. He gets, uh, takes an early retirement, probably at 40, 39, 40. It's in the book. Comes back to Hillsborough. And that, they're the ones, him and his wife, have spent the last four years, it's almost a parallel of me doing the book, restoring this Red Rooster. It's an old 120-year-old hotel, back when all the trains used to go through Hillsborough. He's putting up a distillery in there, a brew pub, a restaurant, 13 rooms. It's going to be a boutique hotel. And his wife says there's no reason Hillsborough cannot be like St. Genevieve, uh, Missouri, or uh, Galena, Illinois. And, you know, it's just, it's a it's a fantastic story down there, you know. And and the, uh, there's so many odd things. That this guy doesn't he – he walks around Hillsborough and everybody goes, well, there's a guy who invented the iPhone. He really doesn't like to talk about it. I got a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but he does it. His kids like to – when I was doing the book, his kids like to work at the newspaper. They enjoyed working at the newspaper. Here's their dad who, like, led the iPhone. It's just a wild story. But the whole big picture is all these people are rolling up their sleeves and they're making sure this is not going to be a dying Southern Illinois town it's, it's, it's just a wild that's terrific story. yeah maybe it could be a model for other towns across our state i know yeah. uh there's many that could use use that same sort of commitment and and whatnot yeah i would yeah, even say just great. don't be scared don't be scared to take a chance you know try something you know dave thanks so much for joining us today uh dave hoekstra's new book is called beacons in the darkness hope and transformation among America's community newspapers. And when are you doing this event? Plug your event again, Dave. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's in Hillsborough, but it's, it's just, you know, it's a, I'm telling people it's a celebration of community and a celebration of the book. It's on November 3rd, 7 o'clock. It's the first event. They've been working on this restoration for four years. It's the first event at the Red Rooster, historic Red Rooster. It's in downtown Hillsborough. Well, good. You can give us a review of the hotel when you get back yeah. and whether or not we should add it to our list of places we need to visit. Uh, yeah. Thanks again. Thank um, you. We are, Thank you we're going to take. Go ahead. Oh, we're going to take a break for news at the top of the hour. And uh, Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob and I have to talk about CNN before we wrap things up today. We'll do that right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. About once a month, Mark Jacob, former editor of the Tribune, the Sun-Times, and former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze and I get together to talk about the media and one thing that we have been keeping an eye on is what is going on at CNN. You may have already seen the anchor shake up um, people who were on during the day, on at night. Some of the people who were on during the day, not on at all anymore. Um, it has been very interesting. The new boss, Chris Licht, has been saying he wants to return CNN to its roots, where it was sort of like just the facts, ma'am. Uh, he also said in a letter that was recently sent to employees that he basically wants to do less political coverage and more 
the stories that people care about. I don't know if that means um, more murders or more missing people. He said he's also open to doing like a technology show and maybe even uh, even sports. Uh, some people are saying that CNN is going to turn into Fox Light. He uh, seems to be very carefully trying not to address any of those issues. What do you guys think about what's happening now and what is um, the writing on the wall of more layoffs, probably? Well, I'll start by saying, uh, as we've talked many times on this show, the three of us, um, you know, the largest shareholder in the company that owns CNN is John Malone, and he has said that he wishes CNN was more like Fox. And he's the boss. I mean, he's the largest shareholder. Um, he's, he's made no secret of how he feels about things. And every indication we have, um, just watching from afar, let alone from some of these stories that have come out in the last couple of days and trickle out here and there, is that that is at least kind of sort of what's happening. I'll tell you, one of the things that jumped out at me was this um, in one of the stories that said um, they were, excuse me, not going to ban ban guests who had supported the false claim of the 2020 election being stolen, but they would attempt to keep those people in, quote, safe zones of truth. Right. I, like, my head wants to explode when I read that. I what in the heck is that all about? That's about, well, we will have people we know are liars, and we will put them on the air to lie about other things. Now, we know that they lied about the elections, but we won't let them lie about the elections. they got to go find something else new to lie about. But we're going to put them on the air. That's what they're saying. It's, it, it is, it is not what, a new thing, right? It's not a new thing. I think what's interesting is that they're saying it out loud. I mean, we know that for years, CNN and other networks have had people on as pundits who say Mm -hmm. false things. And unless they really go around the bend, like it took them a long time to get rid of Rick Santorum. And he, I think it's fair to say, lied every single time he was on the air. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, It took them a long time. They fired the guy who said Sieg Heil, too, finally. But he had to say Sieg Heil. We know they... Yeah, they've been um, giving airtime to liars repeatedly. I mean, so that's nothing new. What is kind of new is to say, oh, we know they lie about this, and we're going to talk to them about that. And I guess fingers crossed that they won't lie. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, what? Well, my question is, if somebody does lie, is the anchor going to be required to call them on it? Or is the anchor just supposed to sit there and nod their head because, you know, it's free speech. And if free speech, right. if they see if they decide free speech is getting on CNN and telling lies, well, you know, we just have to go with that because that's, you know, that's their free speech. You know, if you're going to have somebody on who lies, you better empower that anchor to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back over your last statement. That's demonstrably untrue. Here's what actually happened. If they're if they're going to do that. You know what? I think that 
A, that's not going to happen. B, even if it does happen, as we've talked about before, these guys are pros. They have a message machine, a message mentality. I mean, just take, for example, Ted Cruz. If he's talking, he's lying. There is not an interviewer in the world that can um, deal with that in any meaningful way. Because at a very important level, if you let them say what they're going to say, they win. If you push back on them, they win. Because they say, see how I stood up to the mainstream media, you know? Um, So as Mark has written about before and we've discussed on the show, you know, I think it comes back to a bigger question. Should they be on at all? You know, one of my favorite right. um, interviewees is Rick Scott, the Florida senator, who lies every single time he's interviewed. And he is one of the most frequent guests on Face the Nation. And sometimes Margaret pushes back pretty effectively. Sometimes she doesn't. Does it matter? Does the pushback matter, I guess, is the bigger question. I don't think it does. I think they know that they win no matter what they somebody's hearing what they have to say. She pushes back. They're winking at their base like, ah, ha, ha, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Or, oh, look, I pulled a fast one. So, you know, uh, I I just find it infuriating, obviously. The whole structure on, on CNN has been, you know, really ethically bankrupt for a long time where they, they have hired an official right winger to say to, you know, to lie, to, to, to give the right wing position. And again, just to be really clear, you can give the right wing position without lying, but they don't tend to do that. They tend to lie. And they have hired people. And it, there's one thing with letting somebody on the air who's a politician. And there's another thing with hiring somebody, paying them money, and you're paying them money to give to lie, in effect. You're, mm-hmm. And if they stopped lying, you would they wouldn't do you any good because they wouldn't be representing the right-wing position anymore, so you'd find somebody else who would. So, in effect, they want them to say that. You know, there's this woman named Alice oh, Stewart who's on. Uh, absolutely agree, Mark. Absolutely. That's her job. No, it's her part of the business life. model. Right, right. And her job is to express the right wing talking points, even if they're lies. And if she stopped doing that, if she started disputing the right wing talking points or, you know, giving her own opinions that weren't, that didn't coincide with those, she'd be off the air right away. So, oh, so totally off the air. No, there. Yeah, it's yeah. a bankrupt model. You know, we we saw we saw an influx of uh, right wing commentators and coverage and all of this after Trump was elected and it's never let up. Um, remember a few months ago we talked about how CBS and a secretly recorded co- conversation the president of CBS was wooing and Gail King was wooing um, Republican senators saying oh you know we'll do right by you guys you know. Um, because we think you're going to win the midterms. Just watch, depending on what happens, or even it doesn't matter what happens. You can see the media. um, CNN is turning towards the right. You can see the media um, being nervous about being on the wrong side of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And I think that will continue. And depending on what happens in this election and over the next two years, two years from now, 
it's only going to increase. So paid to lie on the news, um, they're just going to be more of that, I think. You know, um, I was talking last week to my good friend, uh, David Lehman, who has worked as he worked as a news anchor in Ohio and in Texas and in Louisiana and in Rhode Island. He was in management. He has um, he in those capacities, he's planned debates, political debates. He's organized them. He's structured them. He's moderated them. And he told me that um, before a debate, he would sit down with the candidates and he would say to them, if you don't answer the question, I'm going to stop you. If you're trying to just get in your political talking points, I'm going to stop you. If you lie, I'm going to stop you. And if you want to be publicly embarrassed like that, then go ahead. But that is what I want you to know. The ground rules are, and that's what I'm going to do. Can you imagine Chuck Todd or George Stephanopoulos um, uh, saying something like that to a known liar like Rick Scott before the interview starts? No, I can't either. No, it wouldn't even occur to them. Wouldn't it, they don't want to? As we've talked about before, a lot of these folks are all friends, and they live in an access journalism ecosystem that precludes that kind of thing from happening. Nobody wants to be on the outs because then you can't get the scoop for your book that you're not going to tell us about until your book comes out two years after the thing happened. Yeah. I, I I think you're right. And I think that's another example where sometimes local journalists are better equipped to get to the truth than the network folks, because you hit on a great point. You know, who wants to be the network who's completely shut out? Well, you know, I mean, and and the Republicans, to their credit, have gone to the mat behind the scenes and complained and whined and thrown tantrums to the point where um, I think that they do get a lot of times handled with kid gloves because people don't want to make them mad and lose their access. Uh, we need to take a quick break. Um, Mark Jacob, Jennifer Schulze, and I are going to be right back right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined once a month by Mark Jacob, former editor at the Tribune, the Sun-Times, and former Channel 9 news director Jennifer Schulze, and we talk about media. We have been talking about um, the changes coming at CNN, and I have a question for you guys. Uh, How much do we believe in redemption? You know, I mean, this first came to light in the world of comedy, where comedians who 10 or 15 years ago had posted jokes that were racist or homophobic or misogynistic. And even though they were no longer doing those jokes, they were taken to task for it. I mean, Kevin Hart was supposed to host, I think it was the Oscars, and uh, some old tweets surfaced and he was he was cut from that role. 
there is um, talking about there is actually a connection here talking about CNN. Um, they are taking three of their anchors and creating a new morning show. Don Lemon is one of the anchors. And Caitlin, I have just blanked on her last name, who is currently a White House reporter, is Collins, going to be. Yes, another one. And I don't know uh, if you guys read about this, but I believe it was when she was in college. She posted some tweets some social media posts that were homophobic. She has since apologized for those. And CNN is now putting her on a show where one of her co-hosts is an openly gay man. Do we believe in redemption? Do we believe she has moved on from this? Uh, At what point do people get forgiven for past mistakes? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, she's just 30 years old. Um, She said those things in college, which, let's point out, um, then got her a job, I believe, at Breitbart or the Daily Caller. So she was right in line there, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with the way that they do things. Um, I believe that the, the reviews of her work since she's been covering politics for CNN have been very positive. Um, And I don't believe there have been any of those kinds of missteps. Now I could be wrong about that. I can't say that I follow her career super closely, but um, you know, so yeah. I think there's a college. I mean, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to find one person who didn't do something really stupid in college. Well, yeah, but but what about the fact that she then went to work for what we all know is a pretty far right publication? I mean, I used to be a journalist and I now do a show where I share political opinions. I know full well that I will never be hired as a journalist again because of the partisan stance that I am willing to publicly take. She took a partisan stance early in her career. Forget the tweets. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, she's being hired as, oh, well, yeah, yeah, you, that's who you used to be. But now you're just going to be fair and balanced. Do we do we buy that? Well, I guess the, I, the only thing we can do is look at her work. And I don't believe that her work since she's been with CNN has been called into question. You know, and I mean, a lot of people's has, right? Yeah. And it's tricky as far as, you know, I mean, we know what the Daily Caller, you know, is and was. uh, But that doesn't mean that everyone did, especially somebody right out of college seeking a job. Uh, I guess. Yeah, I I think especially I think there's going to be youth exemption. uh, and I, you know, and let's see, let's see what she does. I, I, I've watched her work too, and I think she's actually one of the better ones on CNN as far as you know, is not you know being straight and being clear. So, 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 so I'm you know, the thing that people what bothers me is people who are who are constantly doing bad acts and nothing seems to ever happen to them. Not people who did something really stupid once or twice. Uh, you know, well, then uh, there's the ones that, um, you know, were, quote unquote, straight or regular or normal news people and then went over to the dark side after that, like, oh, Laura Logan or. Uh, well, or, Laura Logan um, actually fits Howie, in the, with the game that I play here 
Um, were they always crazy and we didn't know it, or did they become crazy over time? Because I can remember when Laura Logan was a very respected international reporter. I mean, she seemed like at one point in her career, like she might be the heir apparent to Christina Amanpour. And, you know, she was hired by CBS and then she got let go there. She was hired by Fox, got let go there. And I think just recently, I can't remember if it was OANN or Newsmax. Newsmax. Newsmax has decided she is banned from their shows because she's just too nutty. So she's on the air today. She's on the air today. She's now on, if you call it on the air, she's um, apparently broadcasting today from Mike Lindell, the pillow guy's website and saying things, terrible, terrible things. (laughs) <laughs> well, she's back. Where do you go after she's that? On the internet. After that, <laughs> she was too crazy for Fox. Probably too crazy for Newsmax, and she's gone to Mike Lindell. When did she get too crazy for Mike Lindell, or is there such a thing? And just for yeah. so the listeners understand, you know, she she was um, talking on Newsmax about a global cabal planning to dilute the blood of patriots with. You know, 100 million illegal immigrants and, you know, and I'm talking about world leaders drinking blood and, and, and I mean, just just not so stuff. It wasn't this was not, oh, she's a little bit conservative or anything. This is this is whack job stuff. No. And she's repeating all of that today on the MyPillow TV, saying that hundreds of thousands of kids in the U.S. are being kidnapped so elites can drink their blood to fight aging. Huh. And that's straight. Up. I mean, that's straight QAnon yeah. stuff. That's that's that that's is QAnon. straight. Yes, but yeah, she was a very credible, serious journalist for international correspondent for for sixty minutes. For gosh sake! So what happened to her? Well, I don't know what happened to Brit Hume. I remember Joe really for ABC News, and mm-hmm. he was a correspondent, and he was you know very well respected. Junior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And right. now, I mean, if you see him on Twitter, he's crazy. And what about the right. media guy? How I can't remember his last name. Howie Kurt. You know, it, it, so there, it's an interesting thing. The ones that are a little kooky when they're young and figure it out, or the ones who pretend to be something, and then when they get the opportunity to let their freak flag fly, they do. <laughs> I remember yes. reading Dersh- yeah. Alan Dershowitz back in the day and thinking, boy, he's a pretty smart guy. Boy, I really like his. Another know, example. was he, Were they always yeah. crazy and we didn't know it, or did they become crazy over time? He was, I can remember when I was a young journalist, Alan Dershowitz was so well-respected. And then he just went off the deep end in so many ways. And... Um, you know it. Um, Not with Jeffrey Epstein. I know. Uh, and defending him, work. and 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 sticking up for him, and and who, you know. And then also complaining that all of the people at Martha's Vineyard wouldn't invite him to their cocktail party. Yes, that yes, that was that, that was a tragedy, yeah. wasn't like, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, that is rough. Boy, you got a rough life, Al. And. Not only Jennifer. are you so terrible that people won't have you to their house, but you have to like uh, broadcast it. It was just nuts. Yeah. Um, 
I am deeply disturbed that you even told me that Mike Lundell, the pillow guy, has any kind of live stream on his website. I cannot unhear that. And it's uh, I'm, that's that's going to bother me for the. Oh, oh, wait a second. Let's not forget. A former television news anchor is out of her freaking mind and she is running to be the governor of Arizona. Yeah. Right. Carrie Lake. Yep. Right. And total con artist. Total con artist. She's not crazy, though. She's just a total con artist. I mean, you know, she was, you know, hanging out with LGBTQ people. She was uh, voting for Obama just a few years ago. You know, she was going to drag shows. I mean, she was she was doing the whole kind of liberal shtick, and then suddenly she she must have said a few you know right wing things, and they played really well, and suddenly there she was. And 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 that's the thing. You know, I'm not really scared of conservatives. I'm scared of people who don't believe in anything, but are just acting right wing because they think that it'll get them money and power. They yeah. those people are scarier than people who honestly have conservative values. Much. Guys, I'm afraid I have to cut this short as usual. The discussion is fascinating. We have to go. Um, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, thank you so much for being here. We will have lots, I'm sure, to talk about after the midterm elections and the post-election coverage. So uh, we're going to take a break now. We're going to move on back to politics right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are coming up on a very, very important election. We have talked to you about why it's important, why you need to get out and vote, what is at stake. And uh, we have been profiling different races and different candidates Today, I'd like to introduce you to Judge Chris Kennedy, who is running in the second judicial district. Chris, welcome so much to the program. Thanks for being here. Hi, Joan. Thank you for having me. Um, I heard from your mother-in-law about why this race was important and why I needed to talk to you. So let's start with the basics. What uh, area does the second judicial district comprise? Well, uh, let me start with my mother-in-law. She is <laughs> incredible, so uh, I want to thank her. But uh, the district is five counties. It's all of Lake, McHenry, Kane, Kendall, and DeKalb counties. It's about 1.7 million people, and uh, it's a new district. The district has always existed, but the uh, map used to be 13 counties that went all the way out to the Mississippi. And for the first time in about 60 years, they've uh, reapportioned it. And uh, it is now uh, in toss-up territory. It's a very close district. It leans very slightly Democratic, uh, whereas before, with 13 red counties, uh, it had never, and I, I, to my mind, I don't think ever elected a Democrat either to the Supreme Court 
or the appellate court. The uh, Supreme Court uh, is from five districts, and uh, the second has never had a Democrat uh, at the Supreme or the appellate level, at least not in modern history. Well, right now, um, the eight appellate court justices on the appellate court, um, they're all Republicans, aren't they? And then you're running for an open seat. That's correct. And it it actually is going to go down to six justices. So I'll be one of six. And the way the appellate court works is that uh, you appear in panels of three. So it's not like the Supreme Court where there's seven justices. You need four to prevail on a given case. In an appellate case, you have three of the in in the second, it'll be six. So uh, three of those justices hear the case. Two out of three is the majority. And tell me and tell our listeners what kinds of cases the appellate court hears. Sure. So uh, the appellate court is actually where most of the work of uh, the law uh, occurs uh, in terms of case law. Um, if you're if you're a lawyer, you know this pretty well. But um, for non-lawyers, I'm a trial court judge now. What I decide affects the parties who are in front of me. If one of them appeals, the appellate court will make a decision on that case that becomes a precedent for the trial courts throughout the state. So if I, as a trial court judge, make a decision and party A or B uh, appeals it, the appellate court will make a decision on that case. And every case that is similar to that case afterward uh, will have this to cite as a precedent. So most appeals begin and end with the appellate court. Uh, Last year, for example, the second district decided a thousand cases. And that's the application of statutes that are passed in Springfield. And the appellate court decides it applies here, here, and here, but not there. Uh, And that's usually where it ends, and that becomes the law. Uh, The Supreme Court will decide constitutional decisions, uh, and sometimes they'll make the final decision on certain statutes. But by contrast, instead of a 1,000 cases, the uh, Supreme Court, I think, had 60 last year. So that is the big the big decisions. Uh, but most of the law is decided by the appellate courts. So do you have at the appellate level, um, do judges have actual hearings where there is testimony and evidence? Or is it just um, the both sides in the case that the, that is being appealed present you with the paperwork as to why they think uh, that there is an appeal that is justified here? Yeah, the the trial courts uh, do all of the evidence and the uh, the hearings on the evidence. Uh, whatever is not submitted to the trial court usually can't be heard by the appellate court. So the appellate court reviews the work of the trial court, uh, generally doesn't uh, hold new hearings on evidence. What it does is delve into the law. And so whatever facts were presented at the trial court level are generally binding on the appellate court. So if uh, you know someone testifies one way in the uh, uh, at the trial court level, that's usually the only thing the uh, appellate court can consider. Uh, there are exceptions, but uh, what the appellate court does is hold hearings in, in their appellate um, oral arguments, 
where the lawyers uh, will step up and uh, you know speak for their allotted time period, make their arguments, very much like what happens in the U.S. Supreme Court. Most people are familiar with those types of arguments, and that's the way the appellate court is run, too. Chris, how does such a small number of people go through a thousand cases in a year? I was, I'm trying to do the math here, um, but I have to take out, I assume you only work, you know, you don't work seven days a week. Um, so that's, you know, we have to take away the weekends. That's a lot of cases every day. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is a large volume of cases. Now, that doesn't mean every case gets to a hearing. Many cases are decided on the briefs. Many cases uh, are either tossed or withdrawn, and, you know, those numbers include all of them. So in terms of number of oral arguments, there's only, uh, I think, a couple hundred per year, and those tend to be the ones where the big, long decisions are written. And so those are the ones that become the precedent uh, that, you know, every lawyer is familiar with. Like, if I find a case that is similar to the case I've got, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to cite the appellate court case that's on that topic that's in my favor. And those are, you know, generally a couple hundred. Now there are, like I said, eight justices. Now it'll be six. Uh, but each of them has law clerks that help, uh, mm-hmm. with the research with the drafting. And then there are staff, uh, beyond them. And so it's, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine. There's a pretty good operation that's been in place for a long time. It's weird, we, the system we have where judges run for election and have the backing of a particular political party, because it's not like, you know, if you were like running for state legislature, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, how do you feel about this issue and that issue? But when I'm when I'm talking to somebody who is running to be a judge, you have to be pretty careful about making those kinds of statements. Right. It's and it is uh, the most common thing I hear from people. You know, I knock on a lot of doors and people will inquire, why do we elect judges? Um, And for one thing, I will say this, too. We're not accustomed to electing judges in contested partisan races in Illinois. Generally, uh, the majority party uh, tends to dominate a, a county. And therefore, most of the appointments and the elections are from one party. And so there might be a primary, uh, but there generally won't be a competitive general election. And that's why my race is weird. That's why the Supreme Court races, which uh, feature my colleague Liz Rochford uh, against uh, Mark Curran, that's for Supreme Court and in the second and then Mary Kay O'Brien versus uh, Michael Burke in the third. Uh, these are extremely unusual. I don't. I don't know that we've ever had uh, contested uh, partisan races for these positions. But uh, I'll say this: there, uh, it is counterintuitive to have a partisan race for a, a job that is supposed to be nonpartisan. Uh, but that's essentially what we have under the 1970 Constitution. The compromise was that uh, we'll have a partisan election for judges, but then there will be a nonpartisan retention. Mm-hmm. And so on the ballot, when people are looking at the ballots, they'll see. Um, and first of all, judges are last on the ballot, which that's, that's a whole <laughs> other story. But uh, when you get to judges, you'll see the Supreme Court race, then the appellate court race. 
then you may see uh, a trial court uh, race. Most of those are not contested. And then you'll see retention. And so the way it works at the appellate and Supreme Court level is that when you win an election, uh, you have a 10-year term. And at the end of the 10 years, you are not running for re-election. You are simply up for retention. Mm -hmm. You don't have an opponent. It's just yes or no. Yeah, it's either we we really liked what Chris Kennedy did or we think he's a toad and we're not going to retain him. Right. Or we have no idea and we don't vote. And 60 percent of the people who vote is all that it takes to retain somebody as a judge. And I'm not aware of any judge who was not retained at the higher courts except for uh Kilbride a couple of years ago when there was a lot of dark money that went after him. And Mm -hmm. so so the reason I bring this up is that uh, people don't people get very uh, enthusiastic about the two year and four year races. And they should. Uh, But these are 10 year races. And effectively, they're more like 20 plus years. Uh, The average tenure for, you know, judges and justices who get to this level is over 20 years. And so these are kind of forever. These are really rare to have elections for appellate and Supreme Court races that are competitive. But it's also not likely to be up again for maybe 20 plus years. And so that's why when we're at the back of the ballot, we're uh, underfunded. Nobody knows about the judges. (laughs) It's uh, it's particularly dangerous to to have that kind of situation where, uh, especially with the Supreme Court, where the balance of, uh, you know, four to three could uh, skew either way. We have been talking about the judicial races a lot, and I find that I have to kind of go over, you know, here's how you figure it out. Here are the sources that are available to you to give you recommendations because people do get really confused about it. Uh, Chris, we need to take a break. I'm speaking with yep. Judge Chris Kennedy, who is currently a Lake County criminal court judge, but he is on the ballot running for the second district appellate court uh, because we can't talk about the issues. We'll come back and he'll tell us um, a little bit about his background and why he's a terrific guy and why we should vote for him right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Chris Kennedy is a Lake County criminal court judge, but you are going to see him on your ballot if you live in Lake, Kane, McHenry, DeKalb, or Kendall counties. Um You are going to see his name on the ballot running for the second district appellate court. Uh, We can't talk to him about his stances on issues because, you know, the judge thing. Uh, But I can tell you that he has been endorsed by a lot of pro-choice organizations and pro-choice leaders. He's been endorsed by law enforcement um, and he has a really interesting background, not only as a judge, but as a prosecutor and um, 
And as somebody who served on the local school board uh, in Libertyville for 12 years, Chris, uh, tell us a little bit more about your advocacy for children with autism. Oh, sure. Um, my daughter is now 21 years old. Uh, we, we have three kids, my wife, Lisa, and I. Um, and our middle child, Shay, has uh, very severe disabilities. And uh, it was about, oh, 19 years ago or so that uh, we first saw the symptoms of autism and epilepsy. And um, at the time, I had just uh, started my own law firm. And so we had trouble getting insurance coverage for basic things that she needed. And uh, some insurers could just exclude entirely any coverage for uh, those conditions. And so that got me started inquiring why that was and, and why is that fair? Why is that allowed? And I uh, started getting involved. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, I became the uh, uh, legislative director of the Autism Society of Illinois, which sounds very impressive, but it was basically um, a title that I made up with the uh, <laughs> Autism Society, uh, just so that my advocacy in Springfield would be recognized, just so that I could get a return phone call. And mm-hmm. so it was basically just leading a grassroots effort of families who were affected, and we had tremendous volunteers and families that would uh, go and advocate with us. And I uh, put together a strategy that wound up uh, going over years, um, but we wound up having a pretty good impact, um, although there is massive amount of work left to be done. But uh, we passed bills that provided for insurance coverage expansion. This is before uh, Obamacare, too. Some of the things that we did pass were used in the federal Obamacare bill in terms of what was covered, um, but expanding home and community-based services. You know, the uh, developmental disability world generally is overlooked. We didn't used to even see uh, children and adults with developmental disabilities in our society because they were separated, um, and uh, that has changed over the last 50 years or so. Uh, but there are still huge gaps in, in what's needed and what's uh, actually provided. So the impact on a family is pretty massive. And so that was uh, something I dedicated about, about six years of my life to while trying to, you know, uh, maintain my law practice and uh, all those things. But it is one of the biggest accomplishments that uh, that I've achieved professionally. I uh, I've explained on the radio before how I came up against that whole pre-existing condition thing and was denied uh, insurance until I was able to get insurance through the federal government. Um, I, fe- I feel your pain. Um, I remember some friends of mine. He was a, a television producer and he and his wife had their first child and they he told me that they could not buy health insurance for her at any price from any company because as a baby she had had a heart operation and right. you know nobody would nobody would touch her and i am you know i am so grateful uh for the affordable care act and that whole getting rid of pre-existing conditions thing which was such a nightmare for so many families with so many different kinds of conditions. 
Um, and yeah. you know, is it is it difficult though? Because you kind of have to stop to some degree, or at least rein in being a partisan, even for a, a cause you really care about. Once you're a judge, how do you how do you thread that needle? Well, I can't be an advocate in uh, the sense of promoting uh, legislation or, you know, fundraising for anybody or even promoting any, you know, charitable organization. Um, but I, I can certainly uh, promote awareness of, uh, you know, what our family has gone through. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and part of the mission of the courts is uh, to ensure that people have equal access to justice and you know, there are inherent uh, inequalities in society that we have to recognize. And it's always good to uh, to make that known to everyone that uh, everybody out there has different things that they're going through. And, and we as a system of justice uh, need to keep that in mind and need to make sure that we are uh, providing equal access and fairness to everybody. Okay, people who live in Lake, Kane, McHenry, DeKalb, Kendall counties, pay special attention to Judge Chris Kennedy on your ballot. He is a Democrat, and he needs your vote. Chris, thanks for being here. Please thank your mother-in-law, Sharon Sanders, for letting me know about your campaign. It has been wonderful talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much, Joan. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. God willing, I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.